welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and the artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to Gianfranco Rosi, the Italian director whose new film, Fire at Sea, won the Berlin Film Festival's top prize, The Golden Bear. Last month, the film played at festivals in Telluride, Toronto, and New York, and is now playing in theaters. Fire at Sea is set on the Italian island of Lampedusa that lies in the Mediterranean Sea just off the coast of Libya and Tunisia. Its proximity to Africa makes it a prime destination for refugees coming by boat. In the film, Gianfranco Rosi films with locals on the island and with the Italian Navy ships that rescue migrants at sea. Praising the film in the New York Times, critic A.O. Scott wrote, and I quote, Fire at Sea is impressionistic and intensely absorbing. Like one of Frederick Wiseman's documentaries, it compels you to infer a big picture from a series of extended intimate scenes. At the end, you understand something about the texture and organization of life on Lampedusa and about the effect that migration has had on the island, though it may be hard to put that understanding into words. End quote. Gianfranco Rosi has been making documentaries for over 20 years. His films are set in Benares, India, the American desert, Juarez, Mexico, and Italy. Each film is a process of discovery. As he says, Because that's what I believe a documentary can give us, you know, the incredible ability of, uh, of finding always a new way of telling a story. You know, we have so much range of uh, and latitude of, um, of approaching stories in documentary that uh, for me, every film has to be a different approach. And that's what for me is the hardest part. Gianfranco has won some of Europe's top filmmaking prizes, but his work has scarcely been distributed in North America. His appearance fits the image of a European intellectual. Shaved head, circular eyeglasses with a thick black frame, and an ascot around his neck. But this serious look belies a playfulness. He's quick to laughter and always looking to bring lightness to dark topics. A week ago, we sat down in the Manhattan offices of Synetic Media. He was happy to be back in New York City, where he attended NYU for film school in the 1980s. I asked what he was looking for when he came to NYU. I was approaching you know, cinema uh, very uh, late on my, my late age because I, I was coming from medical school. I did two years of medicine in Italy and I thought I was going to become a doctor. I was able to go in a very good uh, university in Italy. And then um, I realized that you know, there was something absolutely blocking me, which was like the exam of anatomy. It was like nine volume <laughs> in one session to give it. And this, I thought, was like almost against human right. You know, it's like how a person <laughs> can The, the books, face, not, not the actual bodies. Well, the, the, the memorization of nine volumes, huge nine volumes of anatomy, it was a completely against, I realized there was something wrong with my nature. You know, it's like asking someone that does 100 meters to do like a marathon of uh, 50 right. kilometers. It was against my structure, my mental structure. And I had to face that. You know, I said, well, this is, I will never make this, you know. And, uh, and then in that period when I was uh, writing and uh, studying medicine, I, I discovered cinema. I had a small theater in front of my house. And instead of doing my anatomy exam, I, I started, you know, encountering 
cinema. I remember the first Antonioni movie, the first Bunuel movie, also film. And I came to New York, and I was accepted at NYU. And uh, it was a beautiful time in New York, because that was a time where the city you know, was full in the 80s. It was like a, a growing process and became this basically land of uh, experimentation for me, being in New York. And the good thing about the school was not so much that you learn to become a filmmaker by doing film school, but somehow you accept the fact that you're going to become a director one day. But then I was a bit against the whole structure of making a film myself because I felt from the beginning I'd like it to be more independent. Gianfranco saw an example of independence in the 1985 documentary Sherman's March. Director Ross McElwee had set out to explore the legacy of the Civil War, but instead turned his film into a first-person memoir. Here's a clip. Two years ago, I was about to begin shooting a documentary film on the lingering effects of Sherman's March on the South. I'm from the South, and all through my childhood, I heard stories about how Sherman had devastated the South. My aunt even keeps a sofa in her attic, which is punctured by sword holes put there by Sherman's soldiers as they searched for hidden valuables. She says she'll never allow the holes to be sewn up. Anyway, I'd just gotten a grant to make my film, and I stopped off in New York from Boston, where I live, to stay for a few days with the woman I'd been seeing. But when I arrived, she told me she'd just decided to go back to her former boyfriend. Like many viewers of Sherman's March, Gianfranco was impressed that McElwee operated as a one-man crew. In the era of shooting on film, that was rare. Sherman March, I discovered the fact that you can put a camera on your shoulder, microphone, and, and write with your camera, and somehow escaping the whole uh, uh, rigid line of the filmmaking structure, you know, the producer, the actors, mm-hmm. the script, uh, the whole machine that uh, moves around. And uh, I felt very congenial to my nature and to my thing, to, to you know, start the journey with the unknown, not know where you're going to be and, uh, and find your film. Gianfranco was working as a camera assistant in India, where he found the subject for his first hour-long film, Boatman, about a tour guide named Gopal in Benares. Gianfranco films Gopal along with tourists, like this visitor bathing in the Ganges River. This is a sacred river of, <coughs> of India, like one of the sacred rivers of the world. And why not bathe? Why, you know, God's created it. Spiritual experience for me, as a doctor, People would say, why should they bathe here? I think there are many other things we should avoid in the West than coming and bathing in the Ganga. Like McElwee, Gianfranco handled all the filmmaking by himself, shooting on 16mm in black and white that gives the footage a timeless quality. After being two months on the going around to see how what I'm going to shoot, and for two months I had my camera on my shoulder, and uh, I never was able to shoot one single frame. And then when I gave up everything, the dad said, today I'm going to be like a tourist. I leave my camera in the hotel. And I went uh, into the river and uh, I asked for an hour ride on the, on the river. So I did what tourists do when they are in Benares. And then I met this uh, incredible man. His name was Gopal Maji, the boatman. And this hour became two hours, then became three hours, then became six hours, then became the whole day from morning till night. And when I went back to my hotel, I said, that's the thing I want to do. Mm. One day in a boat with this man, and you know, this journey of where anything can happen, encountering things, and he's gonna be my guide. And the next day I went there with my camera and I found him again, lucky enough, 
and then they start shooting like realistic was a day. <laughs> then of course was a total disaster. When I went back to New York, I developed my footage and my my my, my uh, reels. And there were a few things very good on that, but then of course there was no material to make this uh, this, uh -huh. this full day. So much for body. a day in the life. Exactly. And then f since that became my obsession, and I was every time I had free time, I went to India meeting him. At the time there was no phone, nothing, so I was just taking a plane, go there, hoping, hoping you can find you can find him, and starting with him this journey somehow to complete the emotion of that day. It was an emotional reconstruction of that uh, day that I spent with him, the whole film. And after like eight trips and years, maybe three, four years of going back and forth uh, with India, uh, I was able to at a certain point to have the whole structure of this hypothetical day. It's very funny when people see the film, they say, ah, oh, you were so lucky to have all this in one day. <laughs> but it took me three years and always finding him and making this two months journey with him on the river. And you know, I had very little budget at the time. I think the whole film was shot with like 12, 13 hours of, uh, mm. of film, so very, very little. So there was this incredible um, kind of rigor, rigor, too. you know, like, like in one reel had a weight, you know, it cost money, and that reel you had to tell a story always, you know. So whenever you shoot, it was like a, a perfect moment to shoot. So this was an incredible training for me. And that's a film I still love a lot, Boatman. Boatman came out in 1993 and played major festivals like Locarno, Toronto, and Sundance. But it took Gianfranco over 15 years to make his next documentary, called Below Sea Level. That film is set in the American desert, in a place called Slab City, where an outcast community lives in broken-down trailers and automobiles. During the making of the film, Gianfranco formed a friendship with the American writer Charles Bowden, who wrote about life along the U.S.-Mexico border with great lyricism. For me, he was a mentor. He was like someone that really gave me the, um, the solidity of what I was doing because when I was filming below sea level, I was a bit lost, you know, and uh, I was wandering from desert to desert. That was another thing that was a nightmare. It took me years, years, years to arrive to that uh, to that uh, structure at the end, uh, and uh, so how did I you met, meet? Bowden? I met Bowden. I was uh, wandering with my camper from desert to desert, and one day at NPR, I hear uh, this incredible voice and this incredible storytelling and this incredible soul. I can't find the interview that Gianfranco heard 15 years ago, but here's a clip of Bowden talking to NPR in 2010 about the drug trade in Juarez, Mexico. You have to realize that if you're a young male in Juarez, 50% of your peer group will neither be in school nor have a job. The drug industry is a future. The problem is you won't live long, but you can't live very long in a nice sense if you work in those factories because the wages are essentially slave wages. I stopped the camper, I remember, I had a little uh, recorder, at that time there were no phone uh, that could record, I had a small recorder that I was always taking my notes with, and I stopped on the shades and I started recording all this uh, interview, and then listening the whole interview two, three times, and then mm. tried to find his books, I bought uh, a few of his books, uh, reading all his books, and then one day I just said, I have to meet this man. And I remember I was in San Francisco, area. I was coming from the Nevada desert and uh, I was ready to call him. And one day I took the phone and 411 and said, we'd like to talk to Mr. the phone number of Mr. Charles Bowden, Arizona, which I hope was living there. 
and he con- she connected me to, and I hear this voice, yes, this is Javad, at CM, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I explained who I was, and he was like, well, I would like to meet him. I said, where are you? I'm in San Francisco. Well, come by. You know, he asked me, can you cook? I said, yeah, I can cook. <laughs> well, come by. <laughs> so from San Francisco, I drove straight. I went to fantastic supermarket, make a big, uh, uh, bought a lot of uh, things uh, to be able to cook. And I arrived there with my camper in front of his house. And uh, I knocked at the door with my with my delivery basket, basket of food. Of food. <laughs> And he let me in, and I spent there like 20 days with him, uh, you know, like uh, talking about cinema, literature, everything. That's incredible, incredible because, I mean, Charles he saw Gordon my film, was, he saw Boatman, he yeah, fell in love but with But you had the, one film to your credit. Yeah, I had only one point. film yeah. to my credit, <laughs> and a lot of talk, and a lot of hope, and a lot of enthusiasm, uh, and a lot of question for him. But he fell in love with that film. So what were the things that you learned from him? <clears throat> I learned from him... Uh, he, I remember him telling me, don't ask questions when you make your, your work, you know. You ask one question, uh, there is one answer. You ask ten questions, there is ten answer, And that's not interesting. You always have to be able to, to grab something. Very, that's what he does with his book, you know. And still, also in his book, you don't know if it's real, if it's not real, if it's fiction, if it's a reality. So also on that, you know, was a very able, that's what I was in love with, this thing that you could somehow read that as it was a fiction, but was all real, you know. So I had the same kind of approach in my work. And I remember he gave me an enormous support when I was in Slap City filming. We were having conversation almost every day. In my moment of total depression, where I didn't know how to handle things, he was really there for me. In Below Sea Level, Gianfranco was filming with people who had hit the bottom of their lives, finding refuge in the desert 190 miles southeast of Los Angeles literally below sea level, without electricity or running water. Here's Ken, who lives in an old bus. I have a federal offense on my record for living on the public lands, even though I was obeying all regulations. So then he said, oh, okay, well, then I came over the hill down into the desert where it's very big and they don't care because it's too big. So here I can sit finally, don't have to worry about anybody coming up and citing me for falling asleep in the out of doors. And I can enjoy myself here and be comfortable. Um, in town, you gotta hide. It's all by luck, not by law that you're gonna survive out in there. I've learned all the tricks now, believe me, I'd even climb inside of a dumpster to spend the night just to be safe in the city to avoid being arrested. But out here I don't have to go through all those, those hoops. And once uh, I finished to shoot and I thought I was ready to edit, I wanted him to, to see all my footage, which was like 80 hours of uh, <laughs> film. And he said, well, I'm coming to Italy to do a story, uh, I don't remember on what, for JQ magazine or something. So I'm gonna spend like a week in Rome with you. I'm gonna watch all the footage. And I have the most beautiful letter he wrote about this uh, period that he spent in Rome. Uh, with me, and I remember him waking up at four o'clock in the morning and watching alone every day till six o'clock. From f- he, his work was like six o'clock in the morning to six o'clock in the afternoon, and then six o'clock in the afternoon having a nice bottle of wine and go to a fantastic restaurant and uh, spending the night together, and again next morning. So he did that for one That's week, ten days. a remarkable generosity. Fantastic, you know. So he saw the whole footage of the film, the whole 80, 90 hours. 
And at the end, he said, well, you have a damn good film here. Start editing. So he met, he met my editor, Jacopo, and we start immediately to edit the film. And then, um, you know, he, at a certain point, he saw another part of the editing of the film, and he gave me really an incredible support. And the unfortunate thing about that film, that was never screened in the States, you know, it was completely knocked out. The film. It was in Venice. It won the Venice Film Festival Horizonte at the time, but the film never arrived uh, in the States. And for me, this was a, a big defeat, you know, because I thought that this film I was able to break, you know, all the, you know, arriving in the States and having a very good film, mm. but uh, the film didn't made at all here. It didn't have a single screening. In, uh, it was killed by Variety at the time. It mm. was a very harsh review mm. <laughs> towards the film that anything I didn't want to be in the film was written on this review. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which killed completely the film. And that somehow forced me in a strange exile, exile, you know. I felt like, well, I was not able to make a film in a place that I love so much. Mm-hmm. And with, I made it with all my heart and didn't, I cannot communicate what I did in this film to the American audience and to the American journalists, to the American people. So it was a total defeat. We'll be back in a minute with more from Gianfranco Rosi talking about his new film, Fire at Sea. Remember to mark your calendars for Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, taking place November 10th to 17th in New York City. The full lineup has been announced with over 250 films and events and over 300 special guests. For documentary professionals or aspiring filmmakers, there are eight days of panels, masterclasses, and happy hours called Doc NYC Pro. Each day has a different theme. November 10th is First Time Doc Maker Day. And November 11th is Shortlist Day, where I'll interview the filmmakers behind 15 of the year's most celebrated nonfiction features, including Gianfranco Rosi. To learn more about getting a pass or tickets, go to docnyc.net. After Gianfranco's disappointment over the reception of Below Sea Level, he collaborated with Charles Bowden on a film called El Sicario, about a Mexican hitman who claimed responsibility for over 500 killings. They filmed over two days in a hotel room as the killer describes his work behind a shroud while sketching visuals in a notebook. Like Below Sea Level, El Sicario also played in the Orizonte section of the Venice Film Festival a showcase emphasizing innovation and new voices, separate from the main competition. The film won a prize, but failed to get released in the United States. Then in 2013, Gianfranco returned to the Venice Film Festival, only this time in the main competition, with a film called Sacro Gras, about the raised highway that circles Rome and the people who live underneath it. Gras is the acronym for the highway, and the title Sacro Gras is a pun in Italian invoking the Holy Grail. Gianfranco applied his immersive approach by living among the highway's residents for a year. The Venice jury, led by Bernardo Bertolucci, awarded the film The Golden Lion. It was the first time in the festival's 70-year history that the top prize went to a documentary. After that recognition, Gianfranco was commissioned to make Fire at Sea. 
In the film, he focuses on a few residents of Lampedusa, including a DJ who plays local song requests and a doctor who interacts with the migrants. Gianfranco also films with the Italian Navy as they intercept migrant boats at sea. I asked him what he was seeking when he went to Lampedusa. In uh, like three years ago, like where more than 500 people, 360 people lost their lives just in front of Lampedusa. So Lampedusa became like a big uh, uh, cover by the media and everything. But again, nobody ever talked about the island of Lampedusa. So when the Instituto Luce and Carla Cattani, especially this um, fantastic person, contact me and say, we want to give like an identity to this island, hmm. to this place, and I think you would be the right person to go and there. So and who, are, who are they? Are they the, independent the, producers? No, or? The, the, the Instituto Luce is one of the biggest uh, archive center in Italy. Hmm. It's uh, the oldest and the biggest archive center. And they do sometimes short film, um, you know, they do produce something. And there was that moment need to tell a story of Lampedusa, but somehow change and, and, and having the world know Gianfranco had no prior experience in Lampedusa. As he described his experiences to me, he pulled out a pen and notebook and started sketching. And of course, when I arrived there, uh, <laughs> it was very difficult because they were first uh, in that period, uh, the border of Lampedusa moved in the middle of the sea. There was this imaginary line that was like, um, that was structured and, uh, and it was patrolled by the Navy. Hmm. So, at that point, the boat they didn't arrive straight to Lampedusa, but they were intercepted in the middle of the sea. And before this uh, Mare Nostrum is called, and the, the boat used to arrive in the island directly, and there were a lot of contact between the island and the, and the migrants. In the year that I went there, all this stopped because there was this militarized border. And on top of this, the center, the, the hotspot center in Lampedusa was burned down. And so it took like three, four months to rebuild it. Burned down intentionally? There was, yes, there was like a little uh, arson, arson or, inside yeah. and it burned like a part of it, half of it burned down. And so they had to rebuild it, they had to reclean it. They had, so for like, basically when I arrived there for the first three, four months, there was, sign, there was no sign of, uh, of migrant in the island. So I was completely, lost because I said, how am I going to make this film, you know, <laughs> a place that is known to be a point of arrival for the, for the migrants, uh, there's no sign of migrant there. But somehow that was very good because it allowed me to really focus on the people of Lampedusa. And hmm. then a few months later, the center opened up and then it started becoming this wave uh, constantly every day, every day they were arriving, but always very organized because they were brought there from the military Navy or from the Coast Guard and then they usually arrive at night. They're brought into this uh, hot center, and then from there back to Italy, where they start their political uh, requirements. So they only design. stay in Lampedusa for two, three days maximum by law, because it's not a permanent uh, center. It's a, it's a, a, a way station. A, a way station. Uh, so this created again an, an idea that you know was colliding with my thought about the island, because there were like these two worlds. The, the migrant and the population of Lampedusa. So I was thinking, even in a, such a small place, you know, there's no contact between these two worlds. Mm. It's, it's an incredible separation, which is like a microcosm. It's what happened in Europe. It's what happened in the world. You know, these two, uh, two life with these two elements that they never touch, the burly touch. One notable character is an 11-year-old named Samueli, the son of a fisherman. 
I remember very clearly this. I have to choose a kid to tell this story because otherwise I'm going to put myself in a very at the corner, you know, because otherwise I will have only to talk about migration and there's no way I can give this uh, what I wanted, this free identity on the island. Mm. And uh, and then I, when I met Samuele by chance, um, I felt that he was going to become uh, the my narrator, you know, my voice, uh, because he was a special kid. He was 11 years old when I met him. And it was this tiny, tiny little kid with the head of uh, an old man, you know, almost like a Woody Allen uh, mm. <laughs> of Lampedusa. Including the this, hypochondriac. Yeah. Hypochondria with his wisdom, with this kind of anxiety things. But when I was filming him, I discovered that his inner world was always uh, bringing me to something I was not ready also myself to accept, which was like the, the something arriving out beyond Lampedusa, you know, mm. was always taking me into a different spot. And um, so all his uh, daily life uh, uh, um, inner world, they were somehow metaphor for something bigger constantly. And, and I discovered that when I was filming him, you know, when he invents the, the army and he designed the faces on the cactus. He's, he's creating characters out of cactus on the island so that he can shoot them with his slingshot. When, when he builds his slingshot with the gloves, you know, the gloves of... Uh, they are like paramedic gloves, you know, and then he used them uh, for, to build his own field. For the elastic. Okay. For the elastic and the, the anxiety, the lazy eyes, you know, all these things, uh, this very small movement uh, of his life, they were always, uh, for me, extremely, there was an incredible depth uh, to a, a interior life, to something more deep, which was creating a suspension, which was creating a, an inner story of the film. Gianfranco filmed for 40 days with the Navy at sea. For the first half, he just observed without picking up his camera. For me, it's very important to, to understand first the situation. Also there in this boat, I knew that I have 40 days. And the first 20 days I spent it basically interacting with the whole uh, um, crew, with mm. the captain, and somehow to be sure that the moment I was taking out the camera, I was somehow welcome and trusted, and then I didn't feel like uh, someone from the outside world uh, interfering with their work. So it was a very important training period for me too, to understand the whole uh, um, language of what happened in, in a military boat, you know, and how people move, how people prepare for an event, how people dress, how people live, how people sleep, how people uh, put themselves on this, you know. The title, Fire at Sea, comes from a song called Fukamare that's heard in the film. I asked where the song comes from. Yes, also that is a, was a very strong moment because of the first encounter I had uh, in Lampedusa was also with this music. With this, so I, I hear that everywhere in this. This one song. This one song. It was a very easy song, very, you immediately sing it the next day, you know, so it's everywhere, the music. And also when I was filming on the radio, there was a lot of requests of this song. So somehow I started getting interested and asking what was, and very few people knew the original of this song, except then I was able to, when I met uh, the, the DJ people, he told me that was a song related to a tragedy that happened during the war, like uh, this uh, Italian military navy was bombed by an aircraft, uh, Al Maddalena was the name of this uh, ship. This is a World War II World era War II, song. yes, and was bombed by an, an, a British um, airplane. 
and there was this, you know, it was a disaster. People died, and there was fire in the sea. The whole island was full of uh, this uh, fire that you know there were people they were looking at night. But what was incredible was related to a big tragedy and death. And yet the song was so light, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, I felt that somehow was ref- reflecting a bit what I wanted to do in this movie, you know, to be telling a story of big tragedy, but also in a light way, you know, with the kid, with the things, uh, with moments of humor, with moments of uh, where reality somehow has its own uh, lightness in the Calvino, Calvino, Italo Calvino sense, the lightness right. of being. <laughs> And so, and then somehow became the, the became the title of the film. The, I asked the title of the song was Fuoco Mare, which is almost an oxymoron, you know. Fuoco Mare became almost pirate sea. Yeah, it's like a very political also title and really linked to a tragedy. And then one day, but completely by accident, there was a the, when I shot the story between the aunt, the, the, the grandmother, and the little kid. The grandmother brought out this um, this uh, episode, and this was only at the end of my shooting. And again, it gave like a, a strength to the title, you know, because the title came out from the... Comes up naturally. Comes up naturally. This area in Lampedusa has been covered, as you said, by lots of journalists. So what do you think your approach is that's different from journalism? Time, because I spent one and a half year there. Time and uh, and always willing to lose more things that than able to capture things. Uh, I always put this in my, in my account. You know, I never get anxiety of losing things when I'm there in a place. You know, once I decide, as I said, I would, for the first three months I was without camera there. And I had to meet people. I had to know people. I had to have the structure of my of the film inside of me. And I have to accept that I'm able to, that I know when I start, and I, I never know when this process ends. And this become like a a way of life. I want to ask you about this immersive style uh, of yours because you're in a pretty remote place, whether it's on the island of Lampedusa or at sea for many days, and. It's one thing to do that in your 20s um, when you're young and don't have you know, as, as many obligations. But as you get to middle age, the, you have ties to family and friends. And I'm it's, still a it, kid. Eh? <laughs> I'm a 50 years old kid. <laughs> My spirit has to become exactly the same, has to be the same of when I start Boatman. Because if I lose that, there's no way I can make film. You know? So I have to have the same kind of spirit. And the same, same kind of curiosity. The moment I lose that, I'm gonna stop making films. So for me, it didn't change anything. You know, since I was uh, 25 when I was in India, and now that I'm 50, being in the middle of the sea, it's still exactly the same way I'm working. One man crew, the camera on my shoulder, mm. the camera on the tripod, be really independent and alone. And what I have to have is still the, this curiosity and this enthusiasm of the first film. You know, I, I always say my film is always the first and last that I do. I never give for granted that I can make another film. I want to thank Gianfranco Rosi for speaking with me. His film Fire at Sea is distributed by Kino Lorber and is now playing in theaters. On our next episode, I interview Werner Herzog about his new Netflix documentary Into the Inferno about volcanoes. You have to be aware of certain risks. You have to be uh, prudent. 
And strangely enough, in the film itself, we are addressing this question. How far would you go to get a measurement? Of course, uh, dying for it doesn't make any sense at all, neither for uh, the people whom you are having to warn nor your own life. And it turns out that uh, in a way I have been, and I'm saying that the, the only one, the only one in filmmaking who is clinically sane. <laughs> <laughs> New episodes of Pure Nonfiction are released every Thursday. Make sure you subscribe for free on iTunes and please leave us a review. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Moto, social media maven, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.